Let's read the word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. My heart is prepared, O Lord. My heart is prepared to learn and to love any of your words. Your law is my counselor. I will be ruled by it. It is my physician. I will be a patient under it. It is my schoolmaster. I will be obedient to it. And now, Lord, may the, the prayer of Psalm 119 be ours. Would you open our hearts and minds that we might behold wondrous things out of your law? In Christ's name, amen. Well, I've continued uh, to regularly pray for all of you and especially for your pastor and his family and uh, have been grateful to stay abreast of, of uh, the reports on Caring Bridge. Um, so um, our hearts continue to be out uh, for you and uh, I also encourage many others that I meet with to pray uh, that they keep you in their prayers as well. So grateful to be with you today. I have to admit, when I saw the Titus 10 laying up here, I thought, somebody's not too sure about my studying habits, and I, I, I needed some extra help. I always need the extra help. But I thought that that was a, a blessing, a providential blessing that that book would be laying up here on the morning that uh, if the Lord wills, I'll... Uh, with the rotation that you have here in your church that I would just pick up in the next passage um, in the book of Titus in the times that I am permitted to come and, and bring God's word here. So Titus chapter one, verses one through four. Uh, in regard to an intro, I don't want to go too deeply into this. I don't think it's appropriate given the time that we have necessarily or my position with you, but I do want to give just a little bit of background. Most of us, if we have an ESV study Bible or some other good study Bible tools, uh, can get tons of information regarding uh, the background and the setting and uh, the receivers of this letter. Um, basically just get a great intro. But toward that end, let me just give a few brief thoughts. <clears throat> Despite some relatively recent in regards to the canonicity of Scripture, scholarship calling Paul's authorship into question, this letter, which is the third of three pastoral epistles that we have in our Bible, which includes also First and Second Timothy, is historically, literarily, and canonically uh, established as inspired through Paul. There's really not much uh, good scholarship that doubts that Paul actually wrote this and some of the differences in the way uh, this letter has been written are 
basically attributed to the fact that he was writing it to pastor, to a pastor. Uh, he was being a, a little more concise and direct uh, with some of the things he said and how he said it. It's interesting, isn't it, and a mystery of God that he chose to give his inspired, infallible word through very fallible people and continue to use their personality. And so we see the difference in the writing that we have in Scripture. This should not cause us to call um, the, the truth and the, the uh, inerrancy of Scripture into doubt at all, but rather just to be in wonderment that our sovereign God chose to inspire his word this way. Most commentators believe Paul to have been released from prison following the, the account that we're given at the end of the book of Acts in Acts 28. Um, it, no, it, it just ends there. And of course, we long for the end of the story as we come to the conclusion of Acts. But uh, most scholars believe that Paul was released uh, for a period of time from prison, whereby he continued God's mission work in the region around the Mediterranean and subsequently planted the church in Crete. Later, evidently in large part due to the gross and the worldly culture, which as we go through the book of Titus, you'll see mentioned here, that was, uh, was so evident in the island of Crete, Paul assigned his longtime fellow minister, Titus. Now, you don't, you don't get a record of Titus in Acts, but you do get a record of Titus in First and Second Corinthians, and he was a faithful minister of the gospel and trusted with some very, very important ministry tasks. And the purpose seems to be to strengthen this church in the midst of this worldly culture. The general timeline seems to place the letter in the early to the mid-60s AD, of course. And shortly thereafter, Paul was again imprisoned, and then that led to his execution. The basic theme of this book is I've read through the, in, this short letter numerous times, and uh, and let it sink into my heart, I think can pretty well be summed up in chapter 2. And if you want to look there with me in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we read this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the real connection here in this book is truth and life. What we believe should very definitely impact every element of our lives. They should never be separated. And yet church history is rife with examples of sheer hypocrisy. People who would gather, they would commit themselves to a liturgy, they would say their confessions, uh, whatever, they would go to mass, they would partake of communion and do all of these religious things and then go out into the world and live like the rest of the world or in some cases worse. 
This is completely inconsistent with scripture. It should never be permitted within the body of Christ. We need to call it out. We need to be direct about it. We need to be honest about it. And we need to be honest with ourselves and with God. Keep a tender heart. I've been reading in the last four or five days from the Puritan Richard Sibbs on, from his devotional in regards to keeping, how to have and keep and, and to maintain a tender heart towards the Lord. When we seek God humbly and allow him to tenderize our hearts, we're on the first step then of living honest lives of real truth out to the world around us, starting, of course, at home. So that's basically the real theme of the letter to Titus. You'll see in the title that I've given today, which is really only a portion of what, if God wills, we'll, ha- we'll cover, but we see first Paul's pedigree. We see Paul's pedigree, and it's listed for us here in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Very direct, very straightforward. He identifies himself as a servant of God. But this word servant, I'm going to just come right out and say, I think it's unfortunate that most Bible translators in English have chosen the more gentle term servant rather than what it really says. The Greek term here is doulos and it means slave. And others far more astute and and trained than myself have given great exegesis to this, John MacArthur most certainly. But this is clearly slave. But we, we have a complex relationship with the term slavery, with the term of slavery here in the Western world. And it's, it's been made all the more complex in recent years. So we struggle with it. And I think to, to avoid undue misunderstanding or criticism or outright rejection by many readers, English translators then have used the more gentle term, servant. So this, this servant or slave of God is, is someone here that the Greek lexicon tells us is a slave in the sense of becoming the property of an owner. The property of an owner. Paul is not here condoning the institution of worldly slavery. There's been a lot of criticism for Paul's ministry over the years that he didn't just put an end to slavery. Had Paul taken his time to do that, for instance, like Wilberforce gave his life to in the the 18th and 19th century, Paul would have had no time to preach the gospel and go about planting churches. His whole life would have been a deep and terrible battle fighting slavery. Slavery was a very, very well-known, accepted, and worldwide practice. It was a part of society. 
But Paul is not condoning the institution of worldly slavery. He does, however, recognize the reality of slavery in the socioeconomic system of the, of the then civilized Roman world. To have ignored this social caste of slavery would have disregarded a huge, huge percentage of the known world of his day. Within this reality, there were, of course, good and there were many bad masters. Masters of good and kind character were known uh, to treat their slaves so well that some, at the end of their period of slavery that they had been purchased for, would actually choose then to commit themselves to a lifelong um, slavery or servanthood to their master and family. Obviously, slaves that were owned by evil and cruel masters longed for their freedom, and rightfully so. Now, New Testament Christian ethics of our modern era should undeniably, as we read the full counsel of the word of God, should unequivocally deny the legitimacy of slavery and stand against its practice worldwide. I think we're all in agreement in that regard without question. However, as we read about Paul identifying as a slave, it does us well to dive deeply into this. In fact, when I first began to study Titus, I thought this is worth an entire sermon. Just this matter of identifying as a slave of Almighty God. And while it might bring great consternation and criticism and even hatred from some that we would even say such a thing, we have to stop and think about the source. The perfect character of our righteous and holy God assures an attitude, a posture, and a practice of such grace and kindness to his slaves that no earthly freedom could ever compete Hear that. God's character is such that slavery to God cannot be replaced by anything better in this world. To be a slave of God then offers a more advantageous, blessed, and privileged position than any so-called free person living under the bondage of their own fleshly desires. It doesn't take much to look around and realize that those who call themselves free, free from the constraints that God places upon us through his word and, and the institution of the church and even general societal moral ethics and laws, people who call themselves and proclaim themselves free from that are under the greatest bondage that we see. To be a slave of God is also even better to be a beloved child and a privileged ambassador of glory and of grace. So let us never be ashamed or apologetic regarding an unequivocal, an un, an unequivocal slavery to our Heavenly Father. To be so, to be ashamed, to, to, to feel that we have to apologize for this, 
would be to despise the absolute sovereignty of God. So now, if, if you want to turn to it, you can't otherwise write this reference down. It's in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? And I hope and trust that you and I are fully ashamed in our lives outside of Christ. For the end of those things is what? Is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, being set apart, being made holy, being conformed to the image of Christ, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So, this has challenged me deeply. Every day, throughout the day, I have been pricked in my heart about the quality of my slavery to an almighty, holy, gracious God. I owe him nothing less. We have to ask ourselves, how often do we betray our master? by trying to declare our freedom in any element of our lives. So moving on, Paul identifies himself as not only a slave of God, but continuing with his pedigree, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there, there are a lot of people today, I, I hear this in some denominations and in some circles, um, they speak with great reverence about the apostle so-and-so who leads their church or guides their denomination. And inevitably, it seems to lead to a lot of worldly pomp and circumstance. There, there is a lot of uh, pridefulness that seems to be involved in this. I don't find this in the scriptures anywhere. In fact, really, beyond the assignment of apostleship that God gave to those first 11, then 12, and then Paul considered one of that circle as well, we don't see the official title of apostle given to anyone. However, in its basic terminology, it simply means to be a messenger, a sent one. And we do not see in any of the scriptural record that the, the named apostles lived lives that were more respected. Well, I won't say that because they certainly were respected in the church. But they did not live lavish lives. 
They did not live lives that expected to be treated differently or better than other people. They gave their lives for the cause of Christ, most of them literally. So here we see that this apostle of Jesus Christ is a messenger. He's a sent one. And he's privileged with this title only upon the position and the authority of the one who sends him. You know, if I ask one of you to go get me some water, you might, oh, okay, get up and go get me a bottle of water because there's nothing special about me. There's nothing that puts me above you at all. But if a, if a king or a, a, a senator or somebody very uh, high in position and authority were to say, hey, would you mind getting me a cup of coffee or a bottle of water? We would jump to do so because of that person's position and authority. How much more so should we be willing to be an apostle of the one who holds the universe in his hands, who speaks all things into existence, who sustains our lives? So Paul's authority and position are in the one who sent him. In this sense, we see that this ambassador may only be permitted to extend the message that he or she was given, not a message of their own. We don't have a right to make up our own message. Unfortunately, the church has often throughout the ages been like that silly game where you sit in a circle and someone starts with a phrase and then they whisper it to the next person and by the time it comes all the way around the circle, I don't even remember the name of the game. It's just something completely different and we all sit and laugh at how ridiculous the phrase has become. I think in today's church, oftentimes that's the way things are. We've decided we want to interpret scripture how we want to interpret it. And by the time the message reaches people, it's something completely different from what God has given us in his word. We clearly read here that Paul was a messenger sent by Jesus Christ, therefore bringing the exclusive message given by Christ And it would do us well to take heed in our acceptance of the many popular Christian messages or philosophies that we hear today or pick up in a variety of books or magazines. We need to be critical listeners. We need to be critical readers. I'm not saying that we should be a bunch of stuck-up, arrogant curmudgeons. We can be gracious, but we better pay attention to what we're listening to. It amazes me, the conversations that I have with so many people. I do a lot of funeral services, and it is always a privilege. But the things that I hear coming out of people's mouths at the passing of a loved one never ceases to shock the spirit of God within me and cause me some consternation. Who is truly the source and the authority behind many of these messages? So that's Paul's pedigree. 
And it would do us well to dwell on just the first half of verse one for a good long while. But let's move on. He had a purpose as well. This was his over overarching purpose throughout his ministry but we see it stated clearly here in the second half of verse one he says for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness for the faith of God's elect faith is the God-given vehicle by which we receive the grace of God to salvation I cannot pound it into you I cannot preach incessantly at you and then be angry when a lost person does not receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And yet many of us continue to persist as if it is directly our responsibility to save someone. It is the faith of God in the grace of God in Christ. This is a work of the Holy Spirit of God who draws So when we proclaim the word of God and share it with our friends and family members, it needs to come adjoined to the prayer that says, God, would you do your work and draw that person to yourself and open their hearts and minds that they might sense their need and see Christ as the answer to their problem, to their sin problem. Faith is also here an expression of the body of truth and the belief that specifically mark and identify the body of Christ. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. In Ephesians 4, 5, we are under one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And this faith is found within God's elect, the scripture says here. The faith of God's elect. God's chosen people whom he chose. This is a basic tenet of Reformed theology. The sovereignty of God in salvation and it's a worthy battle for us to grasp onto this to study it to understand it God's elect in Ephesians 1 4 and 5 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and our faith comes through our knowledge of the truth The word of God is the seed that is planted that brings forth fruitfulness through the vehicle of faith. What is this truth? It is the full revelation of God through Jesus Christ. It's not a a neat little package that you get after receiving Christ And then all of a sudden you've got this neat little package and you're done. No, Christ is is eternally vast. 
And I've often told people that despite thinking that I had the world by the tail, I had the faith by the tail when I first came to Christ, I realized that I had entered in at the bottom end of a funnel. The walls were fairly narrow when I first came to Christ because I knew nothing. But the more I grew in Christ, the more I understood, the less I knew of him the less I understood of the glories of being in Christ and the riches of the scriptures and all that awaits us. And, the, and so now, at this stage in my life, 40-some years after receiving him as Savior, I feel like I know less than I ever have. And I'm not being disingenuous when I say that. Our knowledge of the truth involves the full revelation of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, and we all know this verse in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the express image of God. He is the embodiment of truth. The more you commit yourself to knowing and loving Jesus Christ, the more you understand truth and can, and can discern truth and receive it and live it and proclaim it with confidence. And this truth, it goes on to say, accords with godliness accords with God. What does that mean? It's in relation to, it's a marker of a relationship of similarity of process. It goes hand in hand with. Here we see the clear and direct relationship of the truth of Jesus Christ. That's our doctrine. Doctrine's not a dirty word. It's teaching. And we need to teach it simply Clearly, regularly, there's a direct relationship of our truth or our doctrine in Christ reflected in the way we live. And we've already stated that from chapter 2, 11 through 14. And it leads to godliness. It accords with godliness. And what is godliness? Well, a real simple definition the Lord laid on my heart this week is the practice of our obligation to our divine master. See, we, otherwise, if you go beyond that, then you start to lean into legalism. Then it becomes what I think Mark should do to be godly. Well, Jackie, you're having some problems, and so let me tell you how to live and what you need to do. All I can remember as a young minister, I would tell people how to do their devotions, you know, and so arrogant but when you listen to the spirit of God within you and it is motivated by this desire to practice our obligation to our divine master then the Holy Spirit of God will flesh that out to you and make it very clear and so we find ourselves in a variety of places in our, in our growth don't we that's why we need to show grace to one another. That's why we need the community and the fellowship of the saints. We find ourselves in all various different stages. We cannot expect someone to walk in off the street and just have all of this. 
No, we should long for people to come in here who struggle with various elements of the faith. And they're, they're battling with things and they even say things that we clearly disagree with. But when they are earnest seekers, we need to give them some room to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We need to love them. And they are trained up in the truth as the Holy Spirit uses the word of God in their lives and the community of saints helps guide and form a trellis upon which they can grow. So let's take a look very quickly then again at, um, in fact, I'm not going to because I just looked at my watch. (laughs) Romans chapter 6, write these verses down. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, 16 to 18, and 20 through 22. Let me just read 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? You remember these verses? I read them a little bit ago. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul's promise and we're going to stop there. I'll just, Lord willing, pick up from there. Uh, if God wills, the next time I'm with you, I am grateful for the opportunity to bring this much to you. Here's my prayer for myself as well as for you and the general body of Christ. And that is that we would recognize that if we truly know Jesus Christ as our Savior, He is our Master. And what does that make us? Slaves. Do battle with that, would you? Do battle with that. Meditate on it. Pray through it. Stop and think about how good and gracious he is and what real slavery, to, what real freedom there would be for you and I in slavery to him. And then what will that cause us to want to do on his behalf is to be a sent one, to be a messenger of his grace and of his glory. Father, would you take these very direct words to young Pastor Titus that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write and challenge our hearts with it? What is our pedigree? How do we choose to identify ourselves? Oh, Father, forgive us for our pridefulness, our defensiveness, our constant self-justification, how we long to look good or even better than we are in the eyes of others around us. Forgive us, have mercy on us. Father, may we humbly submit ourselves as slaves under your gracious hand, looking lovingly and longingly to you for your will in our lives. And then, Father, may that motivate us to live lives of godliness that expresses a life-changing message of the kingdom to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.